Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hello and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast brought to you in partnership with the Legal Talk Network. This is your host, Rocky Deer, and we are here at the 2018 annual meeting for the State Bar of Texas. You know, this is 2018. Subtract 50 from 2018. Do the math. It becomes 1968. That was a tumultuous year in American history. We're not necessarily celebrating that. What we are doing is commemorating that and talking about some of the amazing things that happened that year. It changed U.S. history forever. Now, don't take my word for it. You can take the word of these two gentlemen I have sitting with me, two very special guests. Now, you should be no stranger to these two guys, but I'm going to introduce them anyway. They really need no introduction. So first, we have Professor Doug Brinkley, who is a professor of history at Rice University, and you've probably seen him on CNN. So if the name sounds familiar or if you look him up and his face looks familiar, that's why. And next to him, we've got, we've got Texas's own Tamage Boston. He's a great baseball fan. I know that. I'm going to ask Tamage in just a few minutes who his favorite baseball team is. We're going to find out. I want to say it's the Boston Red Sox. I don't know why I thought that about you, Tamage, but we'll find out in a second. And then Tamage has also written his own book about presidential history. So you've got a presidential historian with Professor Brinkley, and then you've got our lawyer presidential historian with Tamage Boston. So we're going to talk a little bit about the year 1968. And Doug, you're, you're a keynote speaker here at the annual meeting today. Well, that's right. I'm uh, really proud to be here. I try to stay uh, involved with the organization as much as I We're can. We're glad to have you. Thank you for being here. The, um, you know, 1968 is like a day glow year in American history. It started off very strange because of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Uh, the fact that Lyndon, that was that year, wasn't it? Yeah, wow. it, was, it was the new year in uh, early, you know, late January, early February. We were shocked to find out that there was no light at the end of the tunnel in Vietnam. That we were mired in it, and famously, Walter Cronkite by March would go on television for an hour TV special, Vietnam: Who, What, Where, When, and Why. And Cronkite, who was the most trusted man in America, the famous CBS News anchor. With his cigar, yeah. Yeah, yes. He said, um, we probably time to say we were soldiers of democracy. We tried to do good. Uh, we failed somewhat in time to send the boys home, basically. And it started just a tumultuous year. And shortly thereafter, Lyndon Johnson, in March of 1968, shocked the nation by saying he was not going to run for the re-election of the presidency that year. Shocked everybody because in 1964, he had defeated Barry Goldwater in the biggest landslide handily, in American yeah. history. Right Now he's not running in 68. And it's because Vietnam had been so corrosive on the Johnson presidency. And you have um, Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota, Senator Robert F. Kennedy of New York, both getting into the mix to try to get the Democratic nomination and Hubert Humphrey, the vice president's going to try to run, but he's saddled with Lyndon Johnson's failed Vietnam policy. Well, a mist of those atmospherics and political intrigue in the spring of 1968, uh, we had the horrible tragedy that occurred in April of 68 in Memphis, Tennessee, when uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was gunned down, killed at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And then weeks later, in June of 68, Robert F. Kennedy 
was murdered after winning the California primary in Los Angeles. So the dual deaths of those two figures 50 years ago was put America in a, almost a traumatic state. There are still some people will say that's when the American dream died in 1968. And you then had a year of just riots, protests, disruption at political conventions. Yet by the end of the year, Richard Nixon, the epitome of the status quo as president, and America is trying to pull itself together through NASA space programs, um, the, the eventual going to the moon. And that was actually Kennedy's program, right? President Kennedy's... John F. Kennedy, uh, I'm writing a book right now called American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. And it's President Kennedy that after the Bay of Pigs in 1961, and the Soviets had put up Yuri Gagarin, the first cosmonaut, but the first human in space, Kennedy on May 25th, 1961, went to a joint session of Congress and said, we are going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And then he, he... flipped on all the funding gears, and eventually it, it ended up costing our country $25 billion. Any idea what that would be like today, $25 um, billion. You'd be dealing with um, getting close to a trillion dollars if we had to do it wow. today. Okay. Uh, because back then, what, what made us able to go to the uh, moon is the microchip was invented in 1958. So Kennedy's okay. doing the moon challenge in 61. And so it's still we, pretty nascent technology. Is, yeah. yeah. In fact, in 1960, when John F. Kennedy became president, there were no computer science classes in college, none. And by 1963, universities all over were teaching computer science. Uh, the new frontier of John F. Kennedy was one of technology. And here in Texas, a lot of the bacon was brought home. I mean, we have in Houston you know, the Johnson Mann Space Center and NASA headquarters. And then money came into Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, money came into um, Cape Canaveral, Florida, into Brevard, North Carolina, into Hampton, Virginia. So it became a big government expenditures, particularly in the South, because Kennedy had to win the South in 1964. And because of civil rights, James Meredith integrating Ole Miss, for example, he was worried he wouldn't be able to hold the solid South, so he was trying to spend hundreds of millions of dollars all over to kind of keep Democratic senators in line with his presidency. Now, Tamish, take us back to that time period as you remember it, 1968, the 1960s, starting with maybe the Kennedy era, and then taking us up to this tumultuous few months, really, in the beginning of 1968, when you've got, when you've got the Tet Offensive, you have the death of Dr. King, and then the murder of Robert Kennedy. Do you remember what that was like? Was there tension in the air? Was, was this kind of a gradual buildup? Was it a shock? Tell us your memories of that I time. was born in 1953, and so one of the most vivid memories of my life was November 22nd, 1963, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. You were 10 years old. 10 years old. And then, of course, by the time you get to 68, the country is filled with discord over the Vietnam War, and... Martin Luther King got shot, and then six weeks later or eight weeks later, Bobby Kennedy got shot. I remember the morning I woke up, my grandfather, where I was staying at the time, said, well, as expected, Robert Kennedy got shot. As expected? As expected. There was such a sense after his brother's assassination, after King's assassination, uh, with all of the emotional uproar going on in the country, 
I think a lot of people, in fact, Jackie Kennedy famously said when Robert Kennedy announced he was going to run for president, uh, she said, what they did to Jack, they'll do to Bobby. He should not do this. So there was a, almost a sense of inevitability, uh, particularly in the aftermath of the King assassination, uh, that, that this was likely to happen, and in fact it did. How did day-to-day life change or get affected by all these events? Because, and the reason I ask that is sometimes when you have momentous events, it feels like as ordinary Americans, we're still going about our lives trying to pay our bills and buy groceries and do all those things that we do on a day-to-day basis. Did daily life change for those who were in the middle of all this? And how did it change? Well, as Doug pointed out, by 1968, the country had definitely changed to uh, where dissent was almost the majority opinion. And so whereas you grew up where uh, Eisenhower's presidency, a, a time of peace and prosperity, Kennedy gets elected, everybody has high hopes for this young charismatic leader. And then with his assassination, uh, everything seems to change. And, and with each year, it seems like the decibels get louder and louder and louder that this great country that we've all felt so great about is heading toward tumult. And of course, Doug has done all the research. He wrote a fantastic biography of Walter Cronkite. In fact, I'll turn it over to Doug, but famously, Cronkite, after he said we need to get out of Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson said, well, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the country. And so, Doug, you might talk about how that all came out. Well, that's right. Talmadge said it very well. I mean, I think dissent was in the air by 1968. When you're losing, you know, they, uh, Mr. Middle America, Walter Cronkite, he was mm-hmm. from St. Joseph, Missouri, but was raised in Houston, Texas, and had been known as the air dean during World War II, would write about our bomber boys bombing Nazi Germany. And uh, he was just a deeply respected figure. When John F. Kennedy died, he famously took his glasses off and looked at the clock, and we He's all re- weeping. If I remember, weeping, and we all we, we all say, I remember when JFK was shot, or people will say we remember Cronkite telling us he was shot. Right. Um, so when he turned on Vietnam, it was just yet another indicator, another straw on the camel's back that the war had ripped the country apart into dove and hawk camps. But there was something else going on, and that was the culture of mistrust. Uh, people didn't trust Lyndon Johnson because he lied. They didn't trust Robert McNamara. Um, and by 69, they start not trusting Nixon or Kissinger. Um, there's a feeling that government is lying to you. And really, up until that period, there was a big belief that the federal government was your friend. They provided you know, Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security and um, had projects like going to the moon with NASA or the Manhattan Project to win World War II. And suddenly in Vietnam, um, we were seen as the bad guys, that our country, our leaders were killing innocent civilians. And it took a toll on the nation. And then when Dr. King was killed, there never was anybody to, um, to take over the leadership role. We often talk, as historians will call the a modern civil rights movement, 1954, the Brown versus Topeka decision. Sure. And it ends in 1968 when Dr. King's killed. Reverend Ralph Abernathy tried to pick up the torch and you have uh, some of the young King acolytes like Andrew Young and uh, Jesse Jackson tried, but they, they were no Dr. King. And hmm. I, students asked me, well, you know, why wasn't there somebody to take over from King? And That's an interesting I, question. Yeah. I tell them there's, you don't make a Dr. King 
up in a laboratory. He was a rare, rare mixture of. Did of you ever people. meet him, or had you ever? I have not. But I was born in Atlanta, where his father had his ministry, and my father had met Martin Luther King um, a number of times. But when Dr. King was five, five eight, he was little. But we think of him big because of that mm. voice of his. And um, he was a multiple threat. He was an incredible orator, as we all know, mm -hmm. but he was a great writer. He had done his doctorate in theology at Boston University. Right. So he was an intellectual, and he just wrote the famous letter from the Birmingham City Jail when right. he was arrested. He hand wrote that on the sides of a New York Times newspaper and smuggled it out. That's just a draft coming from Dr. King, original hand. That's how good... King was, but more importantly, King had a rare ability to go highbrow and lowbrow. By that I mean he could be with uh, royal, European royalty, billionaires, be at their cocktail parties and be perfectly fit in. And then he could go to the worst bar where, you know, people were brawling, a juke joint in the South, and he could blend right in with um, the working class or the unemployed. That's harder than you think to be comfortable in both of those worlds, and Dr. King pulled that off. So his death in 68 has just left a void uh, we still haven't been able to fill. So, Doug, you're going to be speaking on the second day of the annual convention, at the annual meeting. You're going to be our keynote speaker at lunch. So here you are at the State Bar of Texas. You're not a lawyer. You're a historian. And you're here talking to us about the year 1968. What should we as lawyers be learning from this? What's the lesson we need to take away? That the rule of law is very tenuous, that laws can be broken and you can have mass protest and mass uprisings. I mean, we had in 68 and beyond in that period, Newark burning, Detroit burning, people being arrested for marijuana and putting life in jail, you know, just for a little bit of drugs. Uh, uh, suddenly a drug like LSD was um, legal because nobody even knew what it was and then it becomes illegal and you mm. can arrest people and put them away. That the currents have changed, like the Bob Dylan song, the times they are changing. Sure. Change happens and it's lawyers have to be on the front edge of defending people whose freedoms are being impugned uh, because of the changing times. Meaning, um, you know, today marijuana is smoked in Colorado or Washington and many states freely. People are doing um, a medical marijuana, but back in 68, if you had pot on you, you could face, you know, serious jail time. Well, it's the same substance, but now you get away with it, and back then you got busted with it. So lawyers have to, I think, be able to make sure they're keeping up with how speedy our culture is. Things are very fast right now. Things changing by a nanosecond. And you want to make sure you're always defending our constitutional rights um, because constitution is gets challenged a lot, like Second Amendment now with guns. What, is, what did the founders mean by the right to bear arms? Did they mean that in a 21st century context? And so I think, and you might look at guns that killed King should Sirhan Hassan have been able to have uh, weapons? Should James Earl Ray, who killed King, been able to have weapons when they had criminal records in the past? So these are just kind of, it's endless amount of questions, but we are a legalistic society and lawyers are our frontline warriors. So it's the same questions we wrangle with today that we were still wrangling with 50 years ago, I guess. Now, Tamage, you are a lawyer. 
and you're a historian. Yeah, and I wanted to weigh in on what Doug said, and that is, during John F. Kennedy's presidency, his attorney general was his brother, Robert Kennedy. Right. And most historians have concluded that if it wasn't for Robert as attorney general, uh, John F. Kennedy would not have become such an advocate for civil rights legislation as he did when he finally spoke up in the spring of 1963. So Bobby kind of influenced him Bobby in that direction? Bobby was a driving force. Okay. And, and I think a lot of people think that if Bobby had not been there, we're not sure that John F. Kennedy would have done anything on civil rights. So, and then Lyndon Johnson, I guess, by extension, would not have done anything, you think? Or? Well, certainly uh, the people who are historians of Lyndon Johnson think that he was waiting for the most opportune time to become the champion of little civil rights. And it wasn't until he became president that he represented the whole country. While he's a senator from Texas, of course, he's being elected by Texans. And to be an advocate for civil rights and a senator from Texas would probably have led to his not being elected. So he had to have a nas national constituency, which he didn't have until he was president, before he was in a position to be a grand champion uh, for civil rights. So. The historians who've studied his life say that in his heart, it was always something that he had wanted to do since he had taught the Latino school children but long before he entered politics. But the time wasn't right being from Texas until he became the president. But he was moving on civil rights on the airplane coming from Dallas back to D.C. with, with Kennedy's uh, dead body on, on board. And, and that was his number one priority as soon as uh, he entered the White House. So... A majority of Congress has always been lawyers. Lawyers create the laws. Lawyers were behind the Civil Rights Act and, and how it ultimately was worded. Also the Voting Rights Act a year later in 65. Also the Fair Housing Act in 1968. So lawyers are involved in creating laws and, and also uh, involved as attorney generals or U.S. attorneys or, or district attorneys in, in, in making sure the laws are enforced. Favorite presidents? You guys have talked a lot about the 1960s, and Tamage, I'm guessing Kennedy was on your was on your list of no, favorite presidents. Uh, no, Kennedy's uh, I think has appropriately been described as an incomplete presidency, okay, because he only served three and a half years before he was killed. Sure, and and obviously he had some successes. He also had some failures. Uh, my favorite president is Abraham Lincoln. And how about you, Doug? Theodore Roosevelt, who I've gotten to write about. I wrote a book about him and spent a lot of time. Uh, on TR. My book's a big, fat Theodore Roosevelt book called The Wilderness Warrior. But, you know, what I loved about TR was that he was a writer of history. He once was the head of the American Historical Association. I think he did kind of everything in his he life. He did. <laughs> and he wrote like 35 books and 150,000 letters. And he only lived to be 60 years old. Um, so that's a lot of primary source material for biographers. He wrote and commented about everything. It'd be like somebody alive today who does a daily blog. That's what you get with TR. You're getting almost daily, you can reconstruct his life. Where FDR, a president I've written about, never kept any diaries, wrote books like that. It, so the, his leavings are very sparse FDR. Although he was a more important president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt than Theodore. Theodore be, being the cowboy, the conservationist, the war hero, the rough rider, the New York police commissioner, um, you know, one could go on. It was just an exemplary life, very adventuresome and exciting, ending with trips to Africa and the Brazil wilderness. So it, it sounds like, did you like Theodore Roosevelt as a person or did you like his presidency? As Both. A, okay. 
I think he was a very good president. I would put him in the top five, but um, he is, um, as a figure, I'm most attracted to his uh, vision and his ability to write. So, some, but you know, you, nobody beats what Talmadge said. Abraham Lincoln is kind of in a league of his own. He's That's why I didn't have to ask Talmadge anything. He said Abraham Lincoln. I was like, enough said. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's kind of hard know, to beat. I always tell people, no matter every president's favorite president, I'm excluding Donald Trump. I I can't judge, but most presidents' favorite president is Lincoln. Sure. Because no matter how bad they have it, Lincoln had it worse. So sure. Barack Obama's favorite president was Abraham Lincoln, and George W. Bush's favorite president is Abraham Lincoln. He transcends party affiliation at this point. I think Reagan's, Ronald Reagan's was actually FDR, if I recall, right? He loved FDR. He voted for FDR four times, Ronald Reagan. He also had a soft spot for Calvin Coolidge. Interesting. Um, because okay. of Coolidge's pro-business, um, okay. you know, anti-too-much federal government growth posture. And there were zero scandals under Calvin Coolidge. So right. Reagan curiously brought out Calvin Coolidge's portrait, dusted it off from the back bins right. and put it front and center in his White House. Now, Tamage, you've written a lot about baseball. And I know you've written about, I guess, baseball and the law and all kinds of, you've, you've lectured about what lawyers can learn from baseball. You've got a lot of baseball history and trivia up in your head. I've always wanted to ask you this, favorite baseball team. Well, my favorite team for most of my life was the Boston Red Sox since my last name was Boston. <laughs> but since I've lived in North Texas for the last 40 years That's the Rangers. and have been a regular uh, fan attending Texas Rangers games now for 40 years, in time the loyalty changed such that my number one favorite team is the Texas Rangers, number two are the Boston Red Sox. And as a child growing up in Houston, I was here when the Colt 45s came to town oh, wow. and when the Astrodome opened. And so particularly now with the rise of the Astros world champions and just the amazing team they have now, I love their ballpark, Minute Maid ballpark. Uh, the Houston Astros all of a sudden are, are in the top three. Let's put it that way. Wow. So Texas Rangers and Houston Astros, that's kind of in. Yeah, there's a lot to uh, enjoy about both teams. Of course, the, the Rangers went to the World Series in 2010, 2011. Right. And now here the, the Astros win the world championship in, in 2017. Amazingly, the common denominator is Nolan Ryan, who was the president <laughs> of the Rangers in 2010 and 11, is now a consultant for the Astros. And uh, Doug and I actually got to be friends because I learned that he was such a serious baseball fan. And so uh, we share that, and that's really what got our friendship going in the first place. Well, then, Doug, your turn. What's your favorite well, team? Well, mine by far is the Detroit Tigers I grew up. That's um, an unexpected. Yeah, I wow, grew up in okay. Toledo, Ohio, which is okay. on the border of Michigan, sure. and the Toledo Mudhens is the AAA team for Detroit. But it was only about an hour drive to Tiger Stadium, so okay. my dad used to take me a lot. I now have three children, and I'm taking them. We're hitting, going to every major league ballpark. So Very I just cool. got back from Fenway Park to see the Tigers play the Red Sox. And on July 3rd, I will be in Chicago going to Wrigley Field. The Wrigley Field is a great seeing stadium. Cubs Tigers. Yeah, such and a historic stadium. And then in August, stadium. I'm going to the Oakland Athletics Park to see Tigers Athletics. Wow. So it gives you an idea of what a big Detroit Tiger fan I am. But to echo Talmadge, my number two team is the Houston Astros uh, because I teach at Rice University. You have to be. I you love the stadium course. and love the franchise. So uh, I, uh, I pull for the Astros a lot also. And if I recall, a little bit of presidential trivia. Correct me if I'm wrong, because this is this is y'all's field, and this is a Texas podcast. So I got to say y'all. This is great. <laughs> y'all's is. So I understand that when Richard Nixon he was going to be meeting with with some some senators 
and members of Congress that were opposed to him, the one thing that would kind of bind them where he could actually talk on common ground was baseball. Didn't baseball play a pretty big role in, in his... From what I understand about Nixon, he was kind of socially awkward, but baseball was the one thing he could kind of talk about with people. And that, go ahead. Baseball and football. Okay. Yeah, Nixon was a gigantic sports fanatic. Okay. Uh, and so he knew all the players, all the statistics, and I think you said it quite eloquently. He was a, a nerd who didn't know how to do easy social I wouldn't know anything about being a nerd. <laughs> 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 well, the um, and so Nixon would be awkward. Yeah, uh, if he were at a group like this of lawyers, he but but he would immediately be able to start sports talk, and not just hold his own, but maybe be better than everybody. If you mention a Verlander, he would say yes, he's got a 1.93 earn run average, and you know that would bond him with with different people around the country. His um, sports sports knowledge. That well, one of my favorite stories, after he had resigned from the president. Uh, Nixon tried to uh, rebuild himself and restore something of a reputation, and so he started going on talk shows, and he was getting ready to go on a talk show. He was in a green room uh, waiting to go on, and the, the guest who was going to follow him on the show entered the green room at the same time. There were only two of them there in the, in the green room. The guy who walked into the room was William Kunstler. He was the lawyer for the Chicago 8. He was a flaming liberal. He hated Nixon. Nixon hated Kunstler, and yet they had never met before. So there they are in this room. Just <laughs> Hatred the two has no them. bounds. Yeah, that's, that's right. And there they are in this room, just the two of them, and looking at each other warily. And one of them had the good sense. Uh, they had read about each other. They knew they were both baseball fans. So to break the ice, they started talking baseball. They had a perfectly wonderful conversation before it was time for Nixon to go on. So. To me, that shows how, how baseball can bring people together who otherwise uh, are, are far apart politically. Did they become friends after that? I would not no. say so. Okay. I think they just had a good time in the green room. One, one can be helpful, right? One can absolutely be helpful. Presidential history is one of my favorite topics. I could sit here all day with you guys. It's, I want to I wanna thank you both for being here. I enjoyed it. Thank this you. Was, this was absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So, Doug, Tamage, thank you both for, for coming out sharing this. We're looking forward to your to your keynote address, Doug. So thank you both for sharing your knowledge with all of us. And, you know, look, it's guests like these that make the State Bar of Texas podcast a very, very special place. And I want to thank you for tuning in and listening. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us. Go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating. You can do the same on Google Play or on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to stop by LegalTalkNetwork.com to find out more about our production. Guys, we've just taken a stroll back through time, and it's been, it's been a fascinating stroll, going back 50 years, and in some cases more. I want to thank you for joining us on this little journey, because after all, life is a journey. We want to thank you for tuning in. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.